Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast passionate about food and drink. I'm your host, Scotsman food and drink writer Rosalind Erskine. I'll bring you episodes filled to the brim with some of the best food and drink guests on the Scottish food and drink scene, from top chefs to whiskey aficionados. Hopefully I'll also give you some ideas and tips for cooking and creating drinks at home as we face this current crisis together. Coming up, as we face another few weeks of lockdown, I'll be chatting to CEO of Scotland Food and Drink, James Withers, about how Scotland's food and drink industry has been impacted by the coronavirus and what the path to recovery is. So we've gone from, I suppose, a a view around this year was going to be about another celebration of the quality and more growth to being into crisis mode. Like so many other parts of the economy and so many different households, you really are in, have gone from peacetime to wartime, it feels, in some ways. Founder of West Brewery, Petra Wetzel, will join me to discuss how the current coronavirus crisis has affected her businesses and what she thinks the future holds. Well, I think there's two groups, isn't there? There's uh, the groups who are basically, you know, the first day that the pubs are opening, they're going to the pub. And they're the gung-ho, you know, not, nothing is going to stop us. And actually, I've had quite a few messages to say, you know, the first pint in a pub will be in West on the Green, which is our beer hall on Glasgow Green, which is really lovely. Award-winning chef Mark Greenaway shares his lockdown recipes and how he's adapting to the current coronavirus situation. More than ever, it's just going to be more local, more seasonal, probably smaller menus because it's going to be hard to get produce with the amount that we need when we first open. And finally, I shared a favourite lockdown recipe and drink idea that you can try at home. And this is old school way. I'll live for the day where I've got an American style fridge. Shot of gin. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 2 of season 2 of Scran. This series will now be out on Fridays on a fortnightly basis and I'm now recording episodes from my home in Glasgow as like many I'm now working from home. Whilst this current lockdown may mean that we're away from family and friends we're still here to chat about some of the best Scran around as there's definitely still good food and drinks to be enjoyed despite bars and restaurants being closed. And if you're eating and drinking good Scran at home I'd love to hear so please get in touch with me on Twitter at Rosalind Erskine. This week I chatted to James Withers about Scotland Food and Drink, which is growing and building Scotland's reputation as a land of food and drink. James is CEO of the organisation, which has recently been providing support and help for its members in the food and drink industry. I was keen to find out more from James, how the industry is adapting and if these changes will be permanent, and also what the future holds in life after coronavirus. Hi James. Hi Rosa. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you getting on? I'm all right, I'm fine. How are you finding working from home? Yeah, it's strange. I'm never really someone who's worked from home for that much time at all. My kids are a bit older now, so I'm, I've not got the kind of screaming noises and the running about and the bashing of things. They tend to be up on Xboxes or FaceTiming their friends, so I get a wee bit more peace. So actually... I imagine like most people are adjusting okay. It's just life by video conference and teleconference now, which is a little unusual still to get used to. 
Yeah, it's a bit like a, you get up and you try and dress smartly, but you still want to be comfortable because uh, folk can see you on Zoom. But <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I haven't quite mastered the getting dressed smartly, though, yet. I've given up on that. I've decided <laughs> comfies is a more productive way to work. We're here today to chat about Scotland Food and Drink. Um, so for anyone listening that doesn't already know, what can you tell us about Scotland Food and Drink? So it's actually quite a young organisation, so only set up in 2007. And I suppose the driving idea was to bring everyone together in the food and drink industry, whether they're farmers or fishermen, whether they're manufacturers, to try and grow the value of the food and drink industry and grow its reputation, try and build a national identity for Scottish food and drink. And then from that reputation, try and drive sales of Scottish products right across Scotland, the rest of the UK and, and ultimately around the world. Scotland was once known as, and in certain areas annoyingly, people still think of Scottish food as being like the deep fried Mars bar. At what point do you think it went from deep fried Mars bar, ha ha ha, to actually pretty well known for its food and drink? I mean, what's, what was really interesting and what I found when I came into this job was that, that kind of deep fried reputation where, you know, Scottish food was a bit of a punchline to, to a joke was really a characteristic in Scotland and in the UK. But actually, the further I travelled from Scotland, the warmer people's feelings were towards what the products we had. So, you know, you meet a sushi chef in Japan who'd tell us that the best seafood in the world come from Scotland. Albert Roux would say the finest soft fruit in the world was grown in Scotland. So this kind of reputation or lack of pride, actually, we had within Scotland and the rest of the UK was pretty distinct to, to just here, really. Um, but what has changed and what's really developed is I think some of that pride and that awareness of this amazing, diverse larder that we have in Scotland has started to hit home. And that's been great and has been a key part in what's driven driven the growth that we've seen over the last decade. Um, so obviously, as we said, we're all working from home. There's the global pandemic that's going on just now and it's hard to avoid talking about it. So uh, what are your thoughts on how um, the COVID-19 lockdown is impacting the industry? Yeah, it's, it's had a huge impact. I mean, we came into the start of 2020, you know, on the back of 10, 12 years of amazing momentum in Scottish food and drink with reputation growing, exports more than doubling, sales at home continuing to grow really rapidly. You know, we were a bit scared about a possible Brexit no deal. That was definitely causing a bit of lost sleep. But none of us saw this coming. Uh, and it really has pulled the rug from large parts of the industry. And so many Scottish food and drink businesses have built their futures around supplying our hotels and our restaurants and our bars, not only in, in Scotland, but actually bars and restaurants right around the world. And that market just closed overnight you know, both domestic trade and export trade. And that has had a devastating impact on so many different businesses. So we've gone from, I suppose, a, a, a view around this year was going to be about another celebration of the quality and more growth to being into crisis mode. Like so many other parts of the economy and so many different households, you really are in, have gone from peacetime to wartime, it feels, in some ways. Yeah, and that's that's definitely the language that's been used around the kind of discussion of it. It's like we are at war with this virus. Um, but despite that being obviously quite having quite negative connotations, how are businesses overcoming the setbacks? Are there any sort of um, light at the end of the tunnel stories? Well, I, I suppose if, if you use the peacetime wartime analogy, one of the things you need to do in any circumstances is feed your own population. So despite the huge 
personal challenges that coronavirus has meant to the individual people working in the food and drink industry, the huge business challenges, you have to keep food and drink supply moving. We've got to keep supermarket shelves stocked. You've got to keep people's fridges and freezers full. And what's been amazing the last few weeks is how well that has been done. Despite as much strain on the food supply chain as I've seen um, possibly in my lifetime, the industry and food and drink producers and farmers and fishermen have done an incredible job at making sure that despite us having this kind of just-in-time supply chain, you know, a kind of supply chain where a cow will get milked on a farm today and that milk will be in someone's fridge within 48 hours, despite the potential of that disruption, it has kept moving, which has been incredible. And, and as always in a crisis, you see how resilience comes to the fore, you see how innovation comes to the fore, and just seeing how some of the businesses who have seen, you know, 80% of their business lost overnight, how well they've quickly moved and adapt. They've gone into online platforms. They've started doing direct delivery. Uh, so it's been an amazing example of, you know, how you can get through this kind of crisis. And, and goodness knows we're not through it yet, but actually find a way to, to survive. And that's got to be the focus, really. Make sure that in you know, six months time and hopefully we are through this, that we have that business base there that ultimately will drive drive the recovery. So yeah, speaking of diversity and innovations, um, we've had restaurants catering for NHS workers, um, produce, like you say, producers embracing e-commerce and um, distilleries and, and other, you know, brewers making hand sanitizer. What are some of uh, the, the, these initiatives that impressed you the most? Like, have, has there been anything that's really stood out to you and you thought, wow, I would never have thought they would have done that, but they have. So I suppose the one thing that characterises so many of our food and drink businesses, um, which are all, you know, it's, it's this kind of industry, a bit like tourism, really, which reaches into parts of Scotland that other businesses don't and industries don't reach. So, it's, you know, across the four corners of Scotland and our most fragile areas to, to our cities, but they're all so rooted in their community. And I think what you see, and, and you know, this isn't just a story about food and drink. It happens right across so many different sectors. You see that when these challenges come, people's community instinct comes to the fore. So, you know, the distillery or, you know, that has suddenly lost its key customers overseas or has suddenly found that that hotel chain they're supplying has shut down for a while, their first thought has been to swing into what else can we do in this effort against coronavirus? So you've seen, you know, thousands of litres of hand sanitizer being produced. You've seen, I've seen shortbread manufacturers producing packs which are going into food boxes being delivered to the vulnerable. You see companies like Bid Food and Breaks, you know, traditionally really uh, competitive with each other, working as one to deliver food to people who are shielding at the moment. So I think it's that um, probably that human reaction more than the business reaction that has been amongst the most impressive. And I think that's what is standing them in good stead as well. Yeah, it's been really nice to see how, although it's a really horrible time, it's been nice to see how everyone's kicked into just helping each other, um, which is it's always good. It's always good to get some good news. <laughs> yeah, it is. And I think, I mean, you know, you probably see it in you know, right where you live. I've certainly seen it here. People keep an eye out for the neighbours. Um, there's just a kind of, uh, uh, you know, as well as a, a atmosphere of concern and fear, there's been that sort of community support that's, that's kicking in all sorts of good ways. And in terms of support, um, what tools are Scotland Food and Drink offering members by way of support during this time? Yeah, so we've got 450 businesses that are members of ours. And I think one of our reflections is, you know, in a crisis one of the most important things is information. Actually, just the speed at which things were moving, particularly in mid-March, 
and, and even the first you know first weeks of April, the speed at which things were moving was just unbelievable. And trying to keep up to date with the latest restrictions, what you could and couldn't do, what support was available, has been essential. Um, and so we've we've had a daily update that's been going on every single day, and crucially on almost hourly calls with with government and with ministers around how do we support businesses just now. So that is shaping things like rates relief. It is shaping the furlough scheme and how that works. It's shaping the new one hundred million pounds SME uh, funding scheme that Scottish government have put in place as well. So it's it's working out how you support through information, but you support through financial grants and loans and all of that. And there's been challenges with that. You know, you've had to develop systems in days that ordinarily would have taken months or years to develop. Um, and it's still not perfect. But I think what we do have in, in Scotland is, you know, a real sense that there's a there's one team trying to work on it, government and industry coming together. Again, the kind of thing you see in a crisis. And do you think the government's response has been pretty good throughout all this in terms of how um, unprecedented it all is? So I suppose I'm not close enough to the science uh, to know whether the response to the outbreak itself and the role or otherwise of testing the role of lockdown and when it comes in and when it gets unwound. I'll leave that to the scientists. But what I would say is that on the financial support, you know, we're seeing levels of support that, that are unprecedented, but they're not going to be perfect. And there are, there are businesses falling in gaps of the support that is out there, and that needs to get tidied up. But what I would say is, you know, the, the work that I have seen Scottish government ministers and, you know, their officials, so, so the hundreds and and thousands of people that are, are rarely ever seen uh, or rarely ever credited, the, the hours and work that has been put in to try and support Scotland and the business community through this is unbelievable. Now, it, you know, it isn't perfect and we're going to have to do more because, and particularly in food and drink, which will, you know, it's one of the biggest sectors in the economy. It's worth £15 billion pounds a year. It's the biggest export Scotland has, it will be absolutely key to driving the whole recovery of Scotland's economy. So that work going in now will pay dividends in the years to come. And I, I have to say, you know, I can be the first to criticise government for what they do on things, but it's been a pretty Herculean effort and it's not over. You know, it's it, it's carrying on day by day. Which is what I was going to, I was going to ask next was, um, what can our listeners do to help the industry at this time in the months ahead? But I guess just support your local your local businesses, buy local where you can if you didn't already. Absolutely. And that has never been more important. I think, you know, the general public out there, if there's one thing they can do to help uh, get Scotland through this crisis and support businesses in their community and the future jobs in their community, it's buying local. And that might mean, and it's already happening, it might mean buying differently. And it will be looking at how you can connect with local producers to get direct deliveries. It will be in your local shops and convenience stores look out local Scottish products as well and that will help get these businesses through an unprecedented challenge at the moment and and to a large extent we're seeing that happening we've had some great stories of people you know uh, their buying habits posting photos of the products they've been ordering we're at Scotland Food and Drink we're working on a new national directory which will hopefully provide all aim to provide the single gateway where you can find out who you can source from directly in your local area. And I think those are the kind of things that will emerge as a result of a crisis, but will have a long-term benefit too. So the more people can, you know, think local, think Scottish when they're buying, you know, the better it will be for producers. And ultimately, I think for, for Scotland and its communities over the long run. 
And um, as you've said uh, earlier, Scotland is known for not just whiskey and not just, unfortunately, deep fried Mars bars, um, but, you know, soft fruits, gins, beer, craft beer now, all that kind of thing. Do you have a particularly favourite Scottish product that if you were abroad, you would think, yeah, if it was there, you'd think, yes, I definitely have to have that? Oh, now there's a question. <laughs> uh, so being the coward, I should say, no, no, of course, there's a whole variety of great products out there. But I think if I was, if I was probably having my last supper, uh, I think I'd probably be greedy and want probably a star for the main course. I would definitely scallop starter. So maybe Orkney scallops, which are fantastic. And then a carnivore. So Scotch beef steak, probably ribeye would be my, uh, my choice. And then, uh, over the last few years, I've become, uh, an avid and uh, probably overly enthusiastic fan of our national drink. So uh, any one of our many, many more whiskeys would go down the storm. I'm, I'm an Avalara fan. Of- oh, that sounds like a good last meal. <laughs> it does. A good to way, fair. Great way to go. Great way to go. Um, so one thing that I'm asking um, all my guests this season, because we are stuck at home, is um, what has been your favourite lockdown cuisine? So what have you been enjoying cooking or eating and drinking at home? And can you recommend anything that's quick and easy to our listeners? So uh, I'm not the best cook in the world. That said, I have found being at home, I've tried to be a little bit more adventurous. So last night I decided I would be able to master a sort of fusion of Scottish product with Mexican cuisine. So I made what was admittedly a rather strange-looking uh, burrito pie uh, with Scotch beef mince and lashings of uh, cheddar on top. And actually, it was great. And it took virtually no time, probably 25 minutes from there uh, from start to finish. So I would recommend that. And I think, actually, it was uh, Mary Berry had done something similar on uh, one of the Saturday morning programmes. So that was uh, the inspiration for it. Uh, so finally, um, I've we've got a whole set of new uh, quick fire questions for this season. Okay. Um, so if I'm going to ask you, uh, we've got five questions, right. and if you just tell me the first thing that comes into your oh, head, we get an idea of your okay. <laughs> we get an idea of your uh, relationship with food. Um, are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Go for it. Okay. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of cheese. <laughs> I thought it might be that <laughs> comfort food for me is. Oh, crisps. I'm a sucker for a bag of crisps. My favourite childhood dessert is? Oh, that's a tough choice. That's a showdown between Vianetta and the Arctic Roll, which probably shows my age. Oh, classics. <laughs> um, my food heaven is? Oh, it's, it's steak again. I'm back to steak, I think. It's a good Scotch-free steak, with a, probably with a pepper sauce. And my food hell is? Oh, no. This is terrible. There's some shellfish that isn't good for me. So, uh, and kippers, I tell you what, I used to work in a hotel when uh, when I was young and I used to do the breakfast shift, which meant I had to be at half five in the morning and the smell of kippers ever since then cooking in the kitchen has made me feel unwell. So I would say kippers with profuse apologies to anyone out there that's involved in kippers. It's, it's quite a, a smell to be smelling it early in the morning. It's not good. It's not good. And when you <laughs> when you were the age I was and you might have had a couple of drinks the night before, it was enough to just about tip you over the edge. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Um, well, thank you very much, James. That's uh, It's been a great chat. It's good to know what's happening in the industry right now. Thanks, Rosalind. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Speak to you later. Bye, bye. Well, that was a really insightful chat from James. Thank you very much for his time. Now, time for some drinks. Petra Wetzel, founder of the West Brewery in Glasgow, joined me on a call to talk all things beer and how the drinks industry is adapting to everyone being at home. Plus, find out more about the decision from West Brewery to no longer supply pub Jane Witherspoons. She had quite a lot to say about this. Hi, is that Petra? Hi, it's Rosalind from the Scotsman. 
Hello there, how are Hi, you? Hi, I'm fine, how are you? It's now okay time to talk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was just uh, doing washing upstairs. Nothing exciting whatsoever. <laughs> I think we're all kind of doing a lot more washing just now. It's, it's one of those funny things where you go... Like, um, who would have said six months ago that this this is what life was going to be like in kind of spring 2020, you know? I know, and with this weather as well, it just makes it worse. I know, it's actually, I have to say, normally I would take the dog to the beach. I've got a golden retriever called Brian who just loves big, long walks, you know? And we, we're very lucky where we live in Bearsden. We have a, a very nice loch behind the house, but... You know, there's only so many kind of times you can walk around the same damn lock, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm the same. I've got a cockapoo that's mental and we're going the same, like along the canal every day. And it's like, I'm getting bored. He's getting bored. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just, it, it's just needs must, doesn't it? Sadly. Yeah. So Petra, one of the main stories in the last month has been the fact that West made the decision to stop supplying Witherspoons. Can you tell us a bit more about this and how it became public knowledge? Also, the owner, Tim Martin, isn't someone you admire, really, is he? It's quite interesting that I should have never made the news. It was a very private decision that we made when he basically, you know, basically told all his staff, well, go and find a job in Tesco, you know. I mean, like, the man is just, I have no words, actually, you know, like, he lives on a different planet from me, clearly. And um, and so it was a, a guy with like, I don't know, less than 200 Twitter followers who asked a very, very honest answer, a, a question, which was basically, you know, what um, are you are you going to consider that? And I said, mate, we've already and I was in the middle of packing online job boxes, you know, like and I, um, Jillian, who normally answers uh, Twitter, was busy doing something else. So I answered, you know, and my God, you know, it went like wildfire. Like I didn't think for a minute that one little answer to a man's tweet who had hardly any followers would end up in STV news, you know, <laughs> but I mean, it was quite interesting because we absolutely 100% stand by that statement um, because that's how we really felt about it. But we would have done it in our way, which is, we, you know, we don't court PR, we don't court publicity. We know that some people, even if you do something really nice, they'll find faults in what you're doing. So we kind of stay away from that kind of stuff. But it shows you how strongly people feel about certain individuals who, and there are quite a few of them, actually, you'd think you've got all the money in the world, you've got all the privilege in the world, and you treat your people like that. Mm, yeah. You know, so, and it really rattled my cage because I, I, I'm, I always call myself a capitalist socialist. You know, I think you need to make money in order to dish it out, but I certainly don't need a super yacht and, uh, and a Ferrari, but, uh, there are some people, it's just it's like if you've got all the money in the world and then you wouldn't even pay the people under a scheme, which, you know, he's obviously backtracked now because the furlough scheme was um, implemented. But I just I just thought it was all wrong. It stank. So there you go. That was my that was my tip. But it, it was like one little tweet. I'm going, oh, my God. And I had to switch off my phone in the end because every time somebody tweeted or retweeted it, my phone beeped and it, it just wouldn't stop beeping. <laughs> <laughs> so I just switched off and thought, well, let let you guys all like deal with your social media. I've had enough. I'm off to pack boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but did did you find that it got quite a lot of support then? Because he's quite a controversial oh, huge, character. Huge. I mean, like it, there was not a single person who said, "What are you doing? Why are you not supplying Weatherspoons?" I mean, we got people from all over the UK. And actually, the funny thing is, I we had started 
So if you think about like, you know, you have to kind of rewind on the 16th of March, which was the Monday, the prime minister said, hey, stay away from pubs. So that night I didn't sleep a wink and basically thought of how can we make sure that the people who are still coming to see us on Glasgow Green in our beer hall feel that we're doing the right thing. So we stopped cash, we printed menus so that basically everybody would get a fresh menu every time they came into the beer hall. We took 50% of the tables out. You know, we installed a hand wash basin in the entrance lobby. We put lots of hand sanitizer everywhere. You know, we basically just did everything like as it should be. Mm -hmm. And then obviously on the 20th of March, they shut us down. And not only did they shut us down, they shut all of our customers down. So we are a 95% draft beer business. So like if you think of the turnover, we we run two companies, a company called Noah and a company called Heidi. Noah runs the hospitality side of the business and Heidi runs the brewing side of the business. So Heidi's turnover went from 100% to 5% and Noah's turnover went from 100% to 0%. So we were kind of hit twice. So we've got all this, you know, beer in the warehouse um, and uh, most of it is in kegs. So it's still sitting there. If you've come up with a great idea of what to do with beer in kegs, you know, then let me know. It's worth about a million quid. And um, and then uh, we started promoting our online shop because I thought, well, that's the only way that people can. Because at that point, also, if you remember, there was panic buying, there was no toilet paper, no pasta, no rice. And people were basically panic buying, you know, 24 packs of cheap lager. You know everything except Corona, which <laughs> was really, which was really funny. But we don't sell our our beer is quite an expensive, not an expensive, but it's a premium beer, so it attracts a premium price. But so we don't sell anything bigger than a four pack, and some of the supermarkets have it in single bottles. But you were only allowed to buy three of a kind. So somebody would go into Waitrose and get three bottles of San Mungo, but if you know, they had four bottles of St. Mungo in their shopping trolley. They would were asked to put one back, you know. So it, that doesn't help for supermarket sales, if you think about it. And people are preparing for lockdown. So that's when we ramped up the shop. And for some reason, that tweet, which was a quiet tweet between me and this bloke who asked me a question, who I actually don't know who he is, you know, <laughs> um, just went like wildfire. And because so many people feel so strongly about Weatherspoons, they started buying beer on our online shop so the day of the tweet we sold in a day what we sold the week before christmas oh wow so that was wonderful but that's not going to pay the bills and it's not going to keep us alive as a business so it's really super and we're really grateful but it's a it's like literally a drop in the ocean compared to what beer we would normally be selling and so like our supermarket business hasn't hasn't like tripled or anything like that we're still selling to the supermarkets but the vast majority of our business is now through our own online shop which is is and you know what we've had the most wonderful messages from bristol and portsmouth and london and wales and you know i don't know like inverness and like all over the country people are buying so it's not just people who are in the central belt of of scotland they're literally from all over the uk which is really heartening it's really nice and do you think, um, like going forward, the sector, the restaurant hospitality sector might be the last to reopen up? Do you think it will change the way people buy beer? Do you think people will keep buying online as much as they are? Or do you think as soon as they can get to the pub, they'll get back to the pub? Well, I think there's two groups, isn't there? There's uh, the groups who are basically, you know, the first day that the pubs are opening, they're going to the pub. 
and they're there gung-ho, you know, not, nothing is going to stop us. And actually, I've had quite a few messages to say, you know, the first pint in a pub will be in West on the Green, which is our beer hall on Glasgow Green, which is really lovely. However, my son's godmother, for example, um, has had a letter from her GP to say that she's got to self-isolate another 12 weeks as of today. So she's in a group of people who are not going to go anywhere near a bar or a restaurant. And also, if they live in a household with other people, um, those people will probably not go to a bar and a restaurant because they're having to protect the, the person that they're living with. So I think there'll be a huge split in society whereby there will always be people who are going like, stuff it, I'm going to the pub. And there's others who are just kind of slightly more cautious. And they will continue to drink nice beers at home for special occasions, maybe then inviting very small groups of people who they know where they're, where they've been to their houses. So I think it'll take at least 18 months, if not longer, to normalise, I would say. And then we can all get back in the beer garden, hopefully. Well, I, 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 would, ho- I would hope that uh, the day that the business reopens, there will be people, if the weather is nice, sitting in our beer garden. I just, I cannot imagine that we will be as busy this year or indeed next year if this continues as we've been in previous years. I just can't see it. I think there will be a real shift in the psyche of, you know, the kind of the, the, the population of what what is it that's acceptable going forward? I, do you know, I actually fear, fear we have a very spacious beer hall, so social distancing is not an issue. But what if you have like a 17-seater bistro and you're basically sitting, you know, if you took if you took the tables out in order to have two meters of social distancing, you'll have three tables in a in a restaurant. That doesn't that doesn't work. So actually, I'm I'm not worried about people going bust during lockdown. But I tell you what, see when the government stops furlough pay and the government stops, you know, people from actually being in lockdown, and people are expected to trade under what you know others would consider normal conditions. I think that's when the the problems actually start because you will have half of your turnover that you normally have, but you've still got all your costs and you've got all the costs that you haven't been able to pay for for the last six months. That's when people will go bust. So I'm really worried about that. And I'm worried about the smaller players. I'm not worried about the big boys in the industry. They'll raise, they'll go on the stock exchange and they'll raise money and you know, they'll, they'll all be fine, but it's the small guys that I really worry about. So do you think the government support needs to extend for quite a prolonged period of time then for helping to pay staff and just getting businesses back on their feet? Well, so at the moment, the government furlough scheme ends at the end of June. But what if I can't open until August? Who pays my team's wages in, in July? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they have to extend it and they have to face it because you can't bring everybody back the same day so there needs to be like say for example we're back to go into bars and restaurants i don't know for sake of argument on the 20th of july i think this the scheme needs to extend until september because you can't bring everybody back on day one because you'll not have business on day one yeah it'll take time to settle back in so i think they haven't to be honest with you like it's all great to say oh we've got 330 billion in support and whatever it takes but have they ever run a restaurant or a bar or a drinks business or, you know, it's all kind of broad brush, but the the devil's in the detail. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting rest of year, I think. 
Yes. And uh, the thing that's fun about our industry is the people. You know, we work in an industry where other people go out. So it's the people that that's the incentive. But if you're taking that away from us, then, well, what's the incentive? You're not making any money and you're not being able to go out and 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 work in a fun environment. I, I think it's going to be really tough and it's not tough at the moment because everybody's in hibernation. Yeah, that's what it feels like. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, it's like kind of like, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Like you wake up every morning and it's like, actually, whether it's a Saturday or a Tuesday, it makes not the slightest bit of difference. Yeah, and it's like I got to the stage with me where you're wearing the same joggers, you're going, like you say, <laughs> you're going the same walk with your dog. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and do you have a favourite beer? Oh God, St Mungo. It's my desert island drink. See, if I ever had to go and, you know, self-isolate for for a year and I could only take one drink apart from water with me, it'd be St Mungo. Well, that that's actually one of the sections of the podcast is desert island drinks. But it, <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> it would be, um, what three drinks would you take onto a desert island so you get more than... So 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 water, just for hydration, or, or is water on the island already? No, well... Okay, yeah, it is because I'm not going to be mean. Um, yeah, and then I would take milk to make coffee and tea. I, I, I'm assuming like the drink isn't because you can make tea from herbs, you know, and you can make coffee from you know. I'll, I'd be growing my 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 coffee beans on the island. So coffee uh, and tea and coffee without milk doesn't taste right. So I need I would need milk. Sun mango for sure, and then probably I would take. I can't take gin and tonic. Can I take premixers of gin and tonic? <laughs> yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so that that would be my that would be my drinks. Nice. <laughs> because you can't you can't go on a desert island without booze. It'd be really awful. <laughs> no, no, you'd be too aware of what was going on. <laughs> oh. Well, that's great. I think um, I think we've probably got everything there. Pleasure, pleasure talking to you. Just keep your chin up and keep washing your hands and uh, and, and also keep your sense of humour. Uh, one good hearty laugh a day is really important at the moment. And this is this has definitely been a great laugh. Good, Thank you. Good. Well, very nice <laughs> to talk to you. Speak soon. Thank you. You too. Speak to you later. Bye. 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 Thanks very much to Petra. That was a really insightful and funny chat and a really fancy a cold beer now, which luckily is possible thanks to their delivery service. I also spoke to Chef Mark Greenaway, who recently opened his new restaurant, Grazing by Mark Greenaway, in the Waldorf Astoria in Edinburgh. Obviously Mark isn't cooking up a storm there just now, so I'm really keen to find out what he's cooking at home, as well as how he's coping at this time. Hi Mark. Hi Rosalind, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? How are you getting on at home? You know, I've spent the last sort of 20, oh I don't know, 26, 27 years, um, doing 12 hour days, sort of locked in a kitchen, whereas now... A lot of emails, a lot of phone calls. Yeah, very surreal, very surreal. But um, so that's that's today. Can you take me back to how you got started in cooking and how you became a chef? Oh, here we go. This is <laughs> a long story. Um, yeah, so I started cooking sort of twenty six years ago, just outside Lanark at a little place called the Carlton Bridge Hotel, purely based on the fact that I sort of enjoy cooking at home. I thought, well, it can't be that hard. It's just you're just cooking someone's lunch or dinner. And there's loads of these, so it should technically be easy. So I initially took the job because I, you know, I quite enjoyed it and you know I like cooking at home. And I just thought, well, it can't be that hard. 26 years later. It's incredibly hard. Um, and then sort of lived there, went to Glasgow Hilton when that opened, and then sort of worked all over Scotland, 
um, mostly sort of small country house hotels, and then went to Sydney for five years um, in 2000. So I spent millennium at the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge, which was amazing. It sort of ruined every New Year's Eve since. I can imagine. Because it was just so... I mean, it was the millennium, you know, everyone, it was it was just crazy, but it was such an amazing thing to do, um, which was one of the reasons I wanted to go there for the millennium. And I was there for the Olympics, and again, that was, you know, almost once in a life lifetime um, experience. And I spent five years there, and it was great. I then came back to Scotland, and then again cooked sort of up in the Highlands, so I was at the T. Craig Hotel, eh, sorry, Kilcam Lodge Hotel, T. Craig was before I went to Australia, um, just outside Oban. And then I went to Camelot Hotel, then came back to Glasgow. I was head chef at One Devonshire Gardens for two years, two and a half years. Um, and then it was bought over by Hotel Devan. Um, and then I went down to the borders and then came to Edinburgh, opened my own restaurant. And eight years later, here we are. So it's that's a sort of snapshot of my career, I suppose. And that, that, I mean, you've moved all over Scotland. What would you say, um, uh, the, this is a question that I always like because it caused controversy online. What do you prefer, Glasgow or Edinburgh? Um, they're different. I think they're both amazing for different things. Like Glasgow for shopping, for a night out is, is amazing. But Edinburgh, because of the tourism, the style of restaurant that I've got, probably works a little bit better than in Edinburgh than it would in Glasgow. Yeah, I, I think the demographic of the two cities, you know, our, the amount of tourism we get here in Edinburgh is, you know, incredible. So I don't prefer one over the other. I just, I sort of sit on the fence <laughs> because I was born just outside Glasgow. So I'm more Glaswegian than I am, you know, uh, anything else. So I sort of, I always sit on the fence, I'm afraid. That's probably the best place to be, though, given <laughs> given your situation. Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I always think that um, the food scene in Glasgow's changed so much. Like you, you would think Edinburgh for fine dining always, but Glasgow's, I suppose it's not really like massive fine dining, but it has changed to just become, you know, a bit more exciting, and there's loads of stuff going on. Oh, it's incredible! The, the food at the Garnet and and these types of places—it's just incredible. I mean, the food that these guys are doing is is, you know, but as good as what gets done in Edinburgh. I'm not going to go into a whole Michelin star debate because I know that could uh, <laughs> could get quite um, heated. But I know I know that, uh, you know, people in Glasgow have said, like, there's not been a Michelin star in Glasgow for quite a long time, obviously. Um, and then there's a lot of people who've had them and, and don't necessarily want to keep them because of the pressure. But do you have, do you have any particular thoughts on that? Or are you, are you on the fence? I, I mean, Michelin's a guidebook that's run by inspectors. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know why places get stars and places don't get stars. I've got no idea. It's it's not really something that we focus on at all. It never has been. Um, even when we had the restaurant in North Castle Street, uh, you know, Michelin stars, and it was we never chased awards. We always think that if you're good enough, you'll get the award. And if you're not, you won't. And we never ever got a Michelin star, and it's not something that I would wake up at night, you know, sweating over. Um, we just we just got on with doing what we were doing. And um, yeah, so you had a restaurant Mark Greenaway for quite for a long time, and you closed that recently to open Grazing, which is at the uh, Waldorf Astoria. Um, can you tell me a bit more about that decision to do that, and what kind of led you in that direction? I mean, we were approached by 
the world of Astoria to do that, um, which we obviously gave a lot of thought over. And at the time, we just thought, you know, maybe it is time to change. Maybe it is time just to sort of get bigger. I mean, Restaurant Marguerite had 45 seats. Grazing has 160. Although today, in hindsight, <laughs> maybe less coverage would be better. So it was just, you know, we looked at the opportunity. It was almost too good to be true. So we 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 took it. Um, and we don't regret it. It's very different. The food's a very different style. It's a lot more casual, a lot more relaxed. It's still the same quality suppliers that we're using. We've not changed suppliers. It's still the same quality of food. We still use the same techniques. It's just done in a much more sort of simply and affordable way, I suppose. And uh, since we can, none of us can go out dining, can you set the scene for us also in our imagination? We can be transported to your restaurant. What can diners expect from the menu? What can we look forward to when we get back into the restaurant? I think in 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 general, I mean, not just my restaurant, but in general, I think seasonality um, and local suppliers more than ever. And I know that's been something that we've all been talking about for the last sort of, you know, 10 years. Um but I think more than ever, that's really going to sort of come home just because everyone is going to want to support the small farmers and small producers and the small growers. Because, I mean, look at what's happening now with, you know, small suppliers and growers. So I think more than ever, it's just going to be more local, more seasonal, probably smaller menus because it's going to be hard to get produce with the amount that we need when we first open. So, yeah, that's sort of. I think where it's going to go. Which probably be quite nice in a way, because like you say, people are focusing more on provenance and where things are coming from in the season. So Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I can't tell you what dishes will be on the menu because I've got no idea when they're open. <laughs> so <laughs> there's true. no point in me telling you about an, an amazing <laughs> asparagus dish when we don't open until July. Yeah, that's true. Asparagus the season. So, so yeah, it was just, it's, it's a very strange situation overall. And um, what would you say has been your, who or what has been your biggest influence when you're cooking? Sort of in general, it is just really the, the relationship I've got with suppliers and stuff. They, they'll phone me up randomly and say, you know, I've got this, I've got that. I've got an abundance of it. And that's when I sit down with the chefs. We'll go, right, we can get this next week. What do you want to do with it? And we sort of try and formulate menus that way rather than being too rigid with with ideas um, so I'm inspired by them a lot um, just because I think it's it's one of the great challenges of being a chef I think after the amount of time I've been a chef the, the most the thing I most enjoy about it is creativity and how you can turn an ingredient into a dish and it's just how creative and how free you can be with food and there's not a lot of jobs that allow you to do that a lawyer can't do that you know there's there's laws um, an accountant can't do that because the maths just wouldn't add up. You know, as you're coming up through the industry, you know, you get so used to saying, yes, chef, yes, chef, yes, chef. And you've sort of got to do as you're told because the chef's in charge. And if that's the way he wants you to make mashed potato, that's the way you make mashed potato. But then, you know, as you go through your career and you eventually become a head chef, you can then sort of, you know, cherry pick and go, well, I like the way that that chef made the mash. I'm fresh, I'm just going to add Yorkshire cream. I like the way that guy made this instead of doing that. And, and you can almost create your own style through the experience that you just had over the last sort of 10, 15 years or whatever the case may be. 
and it is just like a magpie, just sort of taking, you know, little bits from here and little bits from there and making up dishes until you actually learn how to do it slightly easier. Then it just sort of becomes a bit easier for you because experience, I suppose. Um, so there is no real way to get inspiration or creativity or inspired from. It's, it's really just everything. So one of the things I'm wanting to ask um, my guest this season is um, what is your what has been your favourite lockdown cuisine? So what have you been enjoying cooking at home? And also can you share an easy to make recipe um, for our listeners so we can get people like tweeting us and sending us pictures and of, of, of your recipe? We, we've probably had the most eclectic meals in the last three weeks than ever. Um, this week I made a huge batch of bolognese three days ago, pulled some of it out, made lasagna with it. So that was good. I've still got another three tubs in the freezer. One of the first times when there was a lockdown is we went on online and bought Chinese takeaway containers. So I've now got 250 Chinese takeaway containers in my spare room. <laughs> and every time every time we cook, we just sort of batch it up and then put some in the freezer and eat the rest. I've always said that when you're cooking, try and cook a full extra portion deliberately take that portion and freeze it because what tends to happen is when you cook for two or four people you cook enough food for two and a half people or four and a half people and then you put the scraps in the fridge then you never eat the scraps and the scraps go in the bin yeah. whereas if you deliberately try and cook for just a wee bit more not much more just a little bit more then you will have a full portion left that you can then just freeze um or equally you can say well i quite fancy bolognese tonight what do you fancy well i fancy tacos right well, we've got that chicken mix in the freezer and i've got bolognese in the freezer so um you don't have to eat the same dinner overnight with your partner or significant other you can have different dinners and yeah so it's uh, eating just a very amount of different things which is great because uh, i think we're all trying to eat um i don't know about anyone else but i'm trying to finish off whatever's in the freezer and it's like like you say, that puff pastry that's been in there for I don't know how many months thinking, right, okay, what can yeah. I do with all this now? <laughs> but uh, no, that's 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 good good advice, good to know. Um, and just finally, one of the last things we've been doing on the podcast is um, a section called Desert Island Drinks, which is if you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? Um, so the first one would be coffee. I cannot start the day without coffee. The second one is probably beer. Yeah, that'd do. Coffee, milk, and beer. Why not? Any particular kind of beer, are you not fussy? I'm on a desert island, who cares? Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> So long as it's cold. <laughs> I'll just put in the sea while I'm collecting my seawater for coffee in the morning. Come nighttime, it'll be nice and cold. <laughs> Um, well, that's great. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, that's really good advice for people cooking at home and also some great insights into the current situation as well as a little bit about you. Um, so thanks very much for taking the time to speak to me today. No worries at all. Thank you much for having me on. Speech later. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you very much, Mark, for those cooking tips and also for your insights into the restaurant trade now and in the future. I hope to visit grazing again soon when it's safe to do so. And finally, here's my lockdown cuisine of choice sardine bolognese and current favourite GT made with Edinburgh Gin's Seaside Gin. So I'm here in my kitchen in Glasgow and I'm just going to talk you through a couple of things that I've been enjoying. The meal that I've found quite easy to make and pretty good with store cupboard essentials is a sardine bolognese, which sounded a bit weird to begin with, but it was a recipe shared on BBC's Saturday Kitchen. 
I'm not a massive sardine fan, but they're obviously tinned or easier to get maybe just now than um, mince or turkey mince, and they keep for ages. And this actually turned out to be a brilliant dinner because it's not too fishy. It sounds like it might be, but it's not too bad. And it uses canned tomatoes, stock, a bit of red wine, lean perrins, Worcestershire sauce, obviously sardines, pasta, things that you might already have in your cupboard and that if you need to go out and get or will keep for a long time. And I found that we make, make it more than once a week, so it's pretty good. And you have a wee drop bread wine left over that you can enjoy with it. And the drink that I've been enjoying is an Edinburgh gin. It's an Edinburgh seaside gin. And I won this actually from Edinburgh gin. They've been hosting fortnightly Netflix parties. So they get a bunch of people together. You can log into Netflix. You download a, a Chrome extension called Netflix Party. And it's a group of you watching a film all together. And during the film, which at the time was a Groundhog Day, which is very fitting, they asked loads of questions and if you got the answer right they picked you at random and you could pick a bottle of gin to be delivered to your house. I picked seaside gin because I've not tried it before. Its botanicals include bladderwax, seaweed and scurvy grass and they say that lends a fresh mineralistic quality and a slight salinity. They say it's perfect with tonic or very flavourful as a seaside martini best enjoyed with friends on a windswept beach which obviously we can't do either of those things now so I've just been having it with some ice and light tonic and the garnish they recommend is green samphire but I don't have that and I'm not actually sure where I get that now so I've been putting a bit of dehydrated red grapefruit obviously fresh grapefruit would work I've found the company in Glasgow called Bottle Drop they do next day doorstep delivery they do tonics, they do mixers, they've got garnishes as well as some wines, beers and spirits. So they were brilliant and they've brought some dehydrated grapefruit. So I'm going to make up a seaside Edinburgh gin and tonic with a bit of that grapefruit. So I'm going to get some tonic. And some ice, which is quite important right now because it's been really warm. And this is old school way. I'll live for the day where I've got an American style fridge. Shot of gin. And there we go, that's a pretty easy, uh, nice to drink gin and tonic on a lovely sunny day as it is today. I'll post some pictures of the gin and tonic and the sardine bolognese and a link to the recipe which is on the BBC website um, on Entail and the Scotsman Food and Drink site if anyone wants to follow it. Don't be put off if you don't like fish or sardines, it is really lovely and really easy to make. Cheers! 
Once again, thanks to James, Petra and Mark. They've given me a lot to think about and cook and drink during this week, as well as some hope for life after COVID-19. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'll be back on the 8th of May for some more Scran. I hope this season gives you all some light relief from our current circumstances and the ideas for what to cook and drink while staying at home. This episode was presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Morvan McIntyre. You can download Scran wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the Entail app for iOS and Android. If you like what you've heard, please rate and review Scran and help other listeners discover us too. This is a Laudable production for The Scotsman. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following on Twitter, where we are at Laudable Pods, and Instagram by searching Laudable underscore podcasts.